0: Hello, Louis Theroux here. How are you doing? Welcome to my Spotify podcast called The Louis Theroux Podcast. Today we'll be speaking to Tan France, a man who it's a great privilege to have on the show, being, as he is, an enormous star on the smash hit Netflix series Queer Eye. So we talk about that, also his upbringing in Doncaster, his rise to fame, the perils of being in the public eye as a gay Muslim man of Pakistani heritage. I should say, by way of background, there's a few things that probably need explaining in advance especially if you haven't seen Queer Eye, though most of you probably have. It's a show that features these five gay guys as they go around making over the lives of random members of the public all over America. Each of the presenters specialises in a certain area of life. Tan does fashion. Bobby does design. Anthony does food and wine. And Caramo is in charge of culture. Oh, and Jonathan is the hair guy, or person. I think he's non-binary. So they advise the people that they meet on how to improve those aspects of their life. Does that make sense? Tan came to fame fairly late. Well, he was 33, it's not that late. But he'd been a very successful fashion mogul with some businesses selling modest ladies' wear and swimwear, which, not coincidentally, probably was very appealing for the Mormon lady, looking for something fashionable but also not too revealing. Mormons wear special underwear. Did you know that? Mormon men do, that's designed to inhibit them from indulging in the carnal appetites too freely. It's a bit like being an escapologist. You know, you wear things that are hard to get out of. So that's the other part that you need to know, is that he was in Salt Lake City when I spoke to him. We spoke remotely. Tan lives there with his husband, Rob France, a former paediatric nurse who's now an illustrator. It turned out Tan was a friend of my cousin's, Justin Thoreau. That's how he says Thoreau. I know, it's crazy. So Justin's name gets tossed about. There's some good-natured ribbing of yours truly, which I tried to take on the chin. It was a little painful. That'll become clear as it goes on. And just to say the episode contains some strong language and some sensitive and upsetting themes. All of that and much, much more coming up.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.
0: So, thank you for doing this, by the way. Of course. It's a real thrill to speak to you. I, I think everyone who's listened to this knows who you are, but I will nevertheless introduce you in a sort of presenterly way, <laughs> as though I were a professional. You are a fashion expert and one of the Fab Five on the world dominating Netflix show Queer Eye, in which you go and spiritually and materially sort of advise and fix the lives of people who could need a little help. Yes. What year did Queer Eye come onto Netflix? 2018. We shot 2018. it 2017. Mm-hmm. It's amazing because that's so recent and yet it's so established in the cultural firmament. So just five years. Five years. Is that Just
1: five, five years. Five years, yeah. How old were you when it all kicked off? I got the job at 33.
0: Right out the gate, it was a hit, wasn't it? Yeah. That first season took off like a rocket. And by the way, in preparing for this interview, I
1: noticed that you've just turned 40. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. I turned 40 about a week ago. I've got a feeling we've got a long time and we can just chat. So I'm just going to tell you my feelings on it. Not that that was a question. When I turned 30, I was concerned, but it didn't bother me that much. Turning 40, I think felt really strange because of the job that I have. If I didn't have my job, I would feel probably a little better about it. But creeping up to 40, I thought, oh no, is this it? Did I just have Six and a half years and that's it. That panic definitely set in. Six and a half years of what? Of this job, this career, these opportunities. You know, you hear so much about once you hit 40, it's harder to get a job in entertainment or it's harder to remain relevant in entertainment. And I hear those things. I hear it from the people around me who are over 40 in in entertainment. And so that started to make me panic thinking, okay, things might start to wind down and I'm going to have to find a way to make my peace with that. How
0: interesting. Is that something that is a sort of background worry for you or it was just a momentary
1: sort of spasm? No, no, I hate to say it because it sounds probably pathetic, but up until maybe three years ago, it wouldn't have bothered me. I would have thought, if it all ends, so be it. I only have Queer Eye and Queer Eye was a lot of fun, but if it ends, this was never my life goal. So hey-ho, let's move on. But since then, so much has happened And I really do love this job. It's not just I did it to appease a few people and to get a message out that I wanted to convey. Now, when I'm no longer trying to push an agenda, when I'm just having fun and really loving it, do I really want it to go away? The answer is no. When I first signed on to the show and I I signed on with a big agency, they said, what do you want to do next? After Queer Eye, it hadn't come out at that point, but it was about to. And I said, oh, nothing. I'm good with just Queer Eye. I can't imagine it's ever going to take off. And so I'll go back to my normal life. And now that couldn't be further from the truth.
0: And just to put this out there, not only is it a fabulous show, incredibly heartwarming a lot of tears big emotion and although I suppose broadly speaking it's sort of in the reality genre but it feels very organic it feels very lightly formatted right
1: can I actually tell you how it does work because a lot of the time we get confused with reality shows and I know we are a reality show but in the US we call us unscripted and we're in a slightly different category when I think of a reality show I think of The only way is Essex, The Kardashians, those kind of shows, which are heavily, heavily, heavily produced. Mm -hmm. The storylines are heavily produced. With Queer Eye, we never, ever have a script. Whatever we say, if a camera didn't catch it, a mic didn't catch it, it's never repeated. And I think that's what makes our show really special. It's more doc style than it is a reality show. And also that,
0: although there are reality beats, like the reveal and the before and after, it's also the case that there is real depth to the way in which the lives of the contributors, who you call heroes, there's a hero in each episode, are sort of explored, and also that the Fab Five themselves sometimes have moments of vulnerability and tenderness, Mm -hmm. exploring their own lives, revealing parts of their story that feel just very authentic and true.
1: When it feels like it makes sense for the hero, we will give as much as we can of our own story to to try and encourage the person that we're helping to open up. We're not dealing with entertainers. We're dealing with people who have never been on camera before. And it's a really intimidating thing, in my opinion, for them to do, especially after season one. Once the show came out, a lot of people knew who we were. And so a person off the telly coming into your home and asking you about your underwear... Oh, your deepest, darkest secrets is really intimidating. And so the way we found connection and common ground with them is by saying, we've been through similar things. Let me share my story with you and hopefully that will encourage you to share your story with me.
0: And in addition, you're also in places where five gay guys might not automatically feel safe or welcome. Yeah. And and I'm remembering the one you did with a cop called Corey. Yeah. In which Karamo, who's the culture expert who happens to be black, is having to basically deal with the history of racism in the police force and
1: his encounters with cops in a way that I imagine was quite hard for him. Cravo was really upset that episode. He didn't know that we were going to get pulled over by the police. Grumma was not meant to be driving that episode. Well, for people um, who haven't seen it, it's got a, an extraordinary
0: opening. So do, do you generally start by driving into the town or the place? Is that m- the m-
1: m- Yeah, that's most episodes. The
0: five uh-huh. of you, Wayne's World style, crammed into a vehicle, not singing Bohemian Rhapsody, but no, talking is. about the, the hero that you're about to meet. And in this one, in the rigged camera that's in the car, you see in the in, that behind you a police cars pulled up, right? Mm-hmm. The five of you look genuinely panicked, yeah. Then, so yeah. then what happened? It turns out...
1: So first off, when we are about to start our date, that scene is called Dossier Read. We had been shooting the show for about a month when we shot that episode. And so we knew how Dossier Reed went. We fight for who's going to drive that day. And Bobby was meant to be driving. We always have an assigned driver, but one of us will say, no, I want to drive this one. It's a short one. I can do this one. You do the longer one. I'm tired today. We have silly arguments like that. And so Bobby was meant to be driving. Karama was frustrated saying you drove last week. I want to drive. And the producers were being really difficult about it, saying, no, no, we don't want you to drive. Bobby needs to drive this time. And Kramer put his foot down and won. So he drove. But... That was all the case not knowing that we were going to be pulled over by a police officer, which was staged, but none of us knew this. Right. The producers will plan certain things to prank us or to get us in a situation that feels very realistic until so we're not rehearsed. And so Cramo drove and we started to get pulled over by a police officer. Cramo was really angry because he felt like the production should have told him what was happening because a black man being pulled over by the police, it will is a scary situation for any black man yeah, in America. Yeah, and even,
0: is it he, either he or someone says, oh, I know this kind of cop.
1: Yeah. And there's a definite mood, a tense
0: mood that settles quickly in the car. And then one of you starts filming or taking a photo Bobby. of the cop, thinking like, this could spin out, right? This uh-huh. could go sideways quite quickly.
1: Yeah. And what you don't see is, Cromo and I tried to stop Bobby from filming because... Crabbo and I have both been pulled over by the police and we were saying, look, it may seem fine for you to film this police officer. You three are white, do not lead this. We'll lead how this is going to go. Just basically shut up all of you and we'll handle it. And then the cop came over, asked him to get out of the car and he was being a little aggressive. And so it made us all panic, but we travel in convoy. So we have a production team ahead of us, a production team behind us, and they could hear that we were getting worried. And thankfully one of them said, just calm down. We're here if anything goes wrong. And that seemed to settle Kramo, and Kramo got out of the car. And thankfully, that's when we, he revealed he wasn't actually pulling us over.
0: So, did you feel a little I, mean, I don't want to dig into like This isn't an expose about the yeah, practices girl. of your production team, but did you have a word with them after? Uh, is, oh, yeah. Did you, so, what was the upshot of all of that? Like, we don't really, that was too close to the line?
1: Yeah. Me and Kramo spoke to them, but I know that uh white counterparts also spoke to them to say, look, we understand that you want this to feel as real as possible. And we understand that Kramo fought to drive the episode, but if you know that something is going to happen that could actually be triggering. We need to know those things. If it's something that could truly be traumatizing for one of us, let us know. And so since then, there's never been a situation like that. Thank gosh.
0: And across the board, you're in spaces, as I said, where you you might not feel welcome. I think that first season's all shot around Georgia. Is that right? Yes, correct. And for someone like Corey, the cop, who I think you also find can make America great again, cap and a Trump-Pence sign and... Just without, I'm not trying to make this about Corey, but you know, across the board, like it's because it's a positive message, and you're you're attempting to bond and help people. That's the entire premise of the show, right? But then you might there might be times when, for whatever reason, someone says something racist or Mm -hmm. offensive or insensitive, or however you want to characterize it, and then you sort of slightly have to be on your best behavior, and you might even be thinking, I don't even know how much I want to help this person now. Does that make sense? I'm just wondering because it's sort of built into the format that it has to be positive,
1: right? Uh Uh-huh. Which is sometimes the hardest part of the show for me. And I'm sure that's the case for Karamo. I don't want to speak for Karamo. But yeah, the most difficult part is sometimes meeting somebody that you just think, I know we're meant to be helping you and I want to do all I can to help you, but you're kind of an a-hole and you don't seem very appreciative or you're racist or you're homophobic. What am I doing here? And so I still 100% support the idea of the show and what we are trying to achieve. But sometimes... We're still human. We can't help but be frustrated. There was actually the very first episode I ever shot. It was my first day on camera. I had a really weird racist interaction with our hero, and I won't speak ill of him because he passed away recently, and I, you don't speak ill of the dead. However, he made a really odd comment that threw me and really made me think this isn't the job for me. So I tried to quit the show. He asked me, no, he called me a terrorist in the car it was me and him alone. We were going to do my scene and I was picking him up from somebody else's scene. And we were in convoy again. The producers were ahead and behind listening to our conversations. And he assumed I was Mexican. A lot of Americans assume if there's somebody brown, they must be Mexican. And so he asked me something in Spanish. I tried to use some Spanish words and I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're saying. I don't speak Spanish. And he was really confused by that and said, aren't you from Mexico? I was like, no, I'm not. Does my accent... Lead you to believe I might be. And he was like, I don't know where your funny accent's from. I said, Oh, I'm from England, but I'm Pakistani. And he was like, Pakistan, like where the terrorists are from. I said, Well, Muslims are from, a lot of Muslims are from, I'm Muslim, but we're not terrorists. And he was like, wait, are you a terrorist? Like, you're Muslim and you're Pakistani? I was like, no, I need you to understand how ridiculous a comment that is. Was he trying it, to be funny? Or, no, or no. He was not genuinely at all. just speaking from a place of complete he was ignorance. Really con- he got really concerned that we were in the car alone because oh he couldn't God. believe that he'd signed up for a show that would have him sit in a car with a Muslim. And so, My normal reaction, I'm from basically a council estate. And when you're from a place like mine, you learn to handle yourself. Mm -hmm. And many years ago, that wasn't Tan France on TV, that situation would have gone very differently and so it is very hard to not act in a way that is instinctive or instinctual for me and to really just try and be kind at all times and say oh no sir let me tell you why you shouldn't call me a terrorist to my face in all honesty what
0: would you have said if there'd been no cameras
1: my response when somebody's aggressive to me well before this because i've learned to be on my best behavior my initial response would have been bitch are you out of your fucking mind like try saying that to my face again really Does that work? (laughs) It has done in the past. Up until Queer Eye, I would like to believe that anyone who was aggressive to me realised real quick that that was probably unwise. I may be small and campy, but it doesn't mean I can't handle myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's the beauty of the show that you are going to places that you're not preaching to the choir, let's put it that way. You're very much going out into middle America, and sometimes you're risking your own comfort and safety, in order to bring a message of acceptance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also, just to point this out, the show is, is a sort of adapted reboot of, of a show called Queer Eye for the Straight Guy that was on Bravo, right, around yes. 2003, which was a big hit on Bravo. Massive, yes. And I know that because the year before, Bravo showed a programme, it was an American network, and it showed a programme called Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends, oh. which was not a big hit, You were on Bravo? (laughs) Yeah, I was on Bravo.
1: Well, then I I know the answer as to why it's not a big hit. It was on Bravo. Bravo's for the gays. Is it? Bravo's the network that all the gays watch, and they want to watch the show to be angry or sassy at the characters. Who's going to be angry or sassy about you?
0: Well, that's nice. We've arrived at my failure to connect with a gay fan base earlier than I expected. (laughs) There's a little part of me that craves, you know, because someone like, this isn't about me. I can't believe you've got me exposing my own insecurities you know how Ruby Wax, Ruby Wax, who's in some ways a kind of lineal forerunner of the kinds of programs I make and yeah. being someone vaguely funny who goes among either celebrities or people who think in ways that are different and sort of kind of bonding, but also cracking wise. And she's got a huge, I don't need to tell you, I I think she's got a huge gay following, right?
1: That does not surprise me. I love Ruby Wax. Me, not so
0: much. Like, I I, I don't think
1: I'm, like, particularly, anyway. You haven't got big gay energy. I would never say that about you. Your cousin does so well with the gays, I don't know what it is that you... (laughs) Well, come on, my cousin's very good
0: looking and exquisitely groomed. He is. I've got, I don't know, I think I've got man-in-a-shed energy. Does that mean, no. oh, that's not a phrase, I just can You know, do you want me to be,
1: well, I was about Please say to be it. really say honest. It. I can't not be really honest. It's my biggest issue in life is I can't not say what I'm thinking. I know your work, which is why I wanted to do this <laughs> podcast, but most podcasts I don't agree to anymore. But if I didn't know you, I would think he seems like the kind of guy who would say something mean about me after we've done the podcast about me being gay, but I know that that's not you. But you just seem so straight that you couldn't possibly be nice to us but you are you're lovely right you know look
0: i appreciate your honesty that isn't what i was expecting and you've given (laughs) me a lot to think about i feel like i'm having my own sort of one man queer eye experience if i had a
1: let me articulate it though please i'm I'm gonna pull it this further i haven't lived in england for a long time but you are my idea of a very posh man Okay, And I'd assume raised upper class. Oh, and so dear. those folks, I just always assume, can't possibly like the marginalised groups very much. Oh, gosh. Oh, God, that's <laughs> but again, painful. I, but it's again, good that I I'm hearing you. that. Obviously, I've known your work for years, so I know that that's not you. But if we didn't know you from TV or radio, yeah. you'd fit the mould.
0: You know, it's good that you're telling me this stuff because I feel like I'm, I'm looking in a mirror of truth. And, and here in, in, I'm thinking that I sort of pass as... Deeply metrosexual, and wow! Um, and uh, it's good to hear that. It's good to hear that. It's not good as such. It's, <laughs> it's, it's perhaps something that, I'm, that. You, you get the medicine that you need, not the medicine you want, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, there's nothing you can do. You speak in a posh way, and yeah. you are who you are. You're, however, you are going to be who you are. You however, I, w- I will are. double down on the fact that it wasn't your fault that the show didn't work. It just was definitely the wrong network.
0: Yeah, if well, here's the show thing.
1: had gone somewhere else, it would have been a success. Well, here was the, where I was.
0: So I was thinking, well, the problem is Bravo. No one's heard of it. They can't have a hit. <laughs> like, no one's watching. Like, they just, they probably only in 100 homes. And then the following year, Queer Eye came on and I was like, oh, turns out they can have the biggest hit on TV.
1: Bravo is one of the most successful <laughs> cable networks yeah. in America. As soon as His- they
0: ditched the posh homophobic English guy, <laughs> everything took off. <laughs> uh, you know, I was in a gay porn film. Excuse me? I was in a gay porn film in an episode of Weird Weekends. I only mention that because I'm trying to burnish my credentials as someone who is very much down with the colours of the rainbow. (laughs) Um, It's called Take a Peek and it's on Weird Weekends season one.
1: And what were you doing in this film? I played a park ranger who
0: visits some guys who are in a ski lodge and I have to announce that there's been an escape at a local prison. And a very sexy uh, convict is on the loose. Of course he is. <laughs>
1: um, and at any point, did you have to remove any clothes? Or no? no. Well, I ah. not for
0: that, but I did take my clothes off to audition for the porn agent. So I. Wow. So there is that. Wow. So this is this is way more. You're doing. You're exposing me, which is definitely the wrong way around. What you know, this
1: say- is. I do this for a living, so I can't help but ask you questions. Of
0: course. I know, well, you're doing it too successfully right now. I was going to say that but we, what we have now with, with Queer Eye on Netflix is the fact that, unlike Bravo, it has an international reach. Netflix is in 190 countries. I know because I researched it. I 193. It oh, my God. I was rounding yeah. down. Is it 193?
1: 193 countries, yeah.
0: Well, perhaps you can tell me how many paying subscribers they have.
1: 240 million at this point?
0: I've got 230... <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> I've got 230 written down, but your numbers might be more up to date. This is good. I don't even have to use my sheets. And how many
1: people are watching <laughs> Queer Eye then? Do we know that? We do, but we are never allowed to reveal that. Tens Wait, of so millions.
0: The point is, it's truly global. Like its reach is everywhere, including countries where the situation with regard to respect of and acceptance of the gay or the LGBT community yeah. is very far from being...
1: Yeah, it does well in Pakistan. I mean, things like that blow my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. And in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi. Did you read about where, where I think
0: homosexuality is a crime? It is. And nevertheless, they get to see Queer Eye, which is almost a kind of dissonance. Because I was thinking about this today, and Reed Hastings apparently... I guess Saudi Arabia said, well, we're not sure about this Netflix. And Reed Hastings, one of the head guys at Netflix, went in and they kind of negotiated. Because the other one is Orange is the New Black, which has quite some hot lesbian scenes, I think. It does. And they said, okay, we'll show those. But the deal was we're going to take off an episode of a show by Hassan Minaj. Did you know about
1: that? Hassan's a friend of mine, I do know about this. The show's called The Patriot Act, and he did one episode about Saudi that was very negative, and they were really unhappy, so he's no longer allowed to go to Saudi, which is actually a real issue for Hassan. Hassan, I believe, still identifies as Muslim, and it's a very important component of the religion. And so, yeah, it's really shitty what they did. You were saying it's an
0: important component, What that he should be able to go to Mecca and make hajj? Yeah,
1: there's five pillars of our religion that one should do action during their lifetime, and one of them is to do hajj. To
0: do hajj. I said make hajj. That was probably wrong. It's okay. I'm doing the best I can.
1: (laughs) That's the face of gammon. Um, Um, But to, to add on to that, the importance for me of doing Queer Eye is that we get to be in countries where you typically won't see people like us. I swear to God, and I've said this before, the reason why I did the show initially was because I wanted people like me who had never seen themselves on TV, who are Muslim and queer or South Asian and queer, to think, okay, I, I do have an opportunity for a decent, happy life. And what I'm doing isn't wrong. It was the main driving force behind me doing the show. As I mentioned earlier, I'd never auditioned for anything before. And I saw this as an opportunity to be myself and show people my humanity.
0: Well, that's a great point. Because what strikes me is that you're at the interface of so many different constituencies that are in different ways important for you. Mm -hmm. And that you have to in certain respects, be aware of those and to some extent serve all of those while also being true to yourself. Yeah. And that, that must be very stressful. You know, you've got your family, you've got the Muslim community, you've got the mm-hmm. Pakistani community, you've got the kind of broadly defined viewing public, right? You've got the gay community and all of them are thinking, well, we want you to speak for us, right? Yeah. And we want you to kind of reflect our values and those yeah. don't always align.
1: It's... um. Definitely the hardest part of the job. The first year or so I was a really different person. I really, really struggled with the pressure of trying to be the best version of all of those things. I'm not the best version of all those things. I do but What does things. that even mean though? The best like that's what be quantified. Yeah, yeah. But what the audience would suggest is the best version. And again, that it can't be quantified. And so no matter what I did, however you slice it, I was never going to be the perfect role model for any of those communities that I represent. And as you mentioned, I represent so many of them. And so... I felt so greatly that I was doing my community a disservice or maybe I was pushing too hard and all those communities weren't ready for it. And so that first year I really struggled. I would see, I stupidly left my Instagram open. So I I would see DMs, I would see comments because I thought it was important for me to understand what the audience was thinking of me and my work. But really, it just became an opportunity for everyone to share their disdain for how I was living my life. Don't get me wrong, it was balanced out by incredible comments from wonderful people all over the world, which was so nice. But it's so rare you focus on those when you're getting beaten constantly. Right. And well, so, one
0: negative comment is, you know, for whatever reason, outweighs it negates, 100 positive. Yeah, it negates positive. all the
1: good yeah. ones. So yeah, that first year, year and a half was pretty brutal on my mental health. And then I decided to turn off my comments on Instagram and stop reading what people had to say about me and just do the damn job. And then I started being more vocal about it on my social saying... I've never said I'm going to represent you all. I'm going to do the best I can to represent all the communities I can, but I can only do it my way. And if you don't agree with it, so be it you go and show what a good version of a Muslim, a Pakistani, a queer person is. Feel free to do so, but I'm going to show you my version. And so since then, I've kind of have a, it's not a fuck it mentality, but it's a, I'm doing my best, fuck off mentality.
0: Can you generalize about what was coming in? Like, was there a a particular slant to the
1: comments? Yeah, most of the comments were, you're not Muslim, you're not one of us because you're gay or queer. It's completely against the religion. You shouldn't be promoting the fact that you're one of us or even Pakistani. Initially, when the show first came out, I was still Donny Tan is what I call myself, the other version of me. I'm from Doncaster, so we refer to it as Donny. And Donny Tan, as I said, was a little more aggressive. And so I would reply to some of those people saying, I know for a fact." that you are not the perfect Muslim you think you are. I'm sure that you do things that are against religion. Drink, had sex outside of marriage, Mm. had sex before marriage. You've looked at a woman, you've fantasized about a woman. All those things. I know that you've done that, so who the fuck are you to judge me? Um, Have you ever... I don't want to be um, get really heavy, but I'll ask it. Have you ever felt physically unsafe oh gosh so many times so many times within that first year in particular but again it may have happened since i just don't know because we don't have dms open where people said you should die we're going to kill you all those shitty things you've got speaking engagement we know we're going to kill you we know you're releasing your book you're going to barnes and noble if you don't kill yourself we'll kill you that bullshit wow but that must be pretty frightening you know the mean comments were f- more frightening than those i don't know why i spoke to my husband about it a lot i o- always thought they're not going to travel to attack me, and i don't know where that confidence came from or that stupidity came from i just thought oh, i'll be fine really? they always provide security wherever i go publicly so i just thought well, they'll find a way to protect me
0: well good for you for not feeling intimidated
1: No. And even on the street, if somebody, there's only been a couple of situations where it's very clear that somebody's really angry at me. I box, just as a side note. I box and I've been boxing for a long time. I fight pretty well. You're in great shape, by the
0: way. I saw your your recent post where you posted a a selfie with a, what's the term? Yes.
1: A scan on my... A scan on your
0: tummy and... Mainly, what I was looking at was how toned you were looking.
1: Thanks, thanks. I work out a lot and I box a lot, and so I feel relatively safe. I will say that growing up in the community, I did there was so much violence. I learned to be really violent, and it's not a side of me that I ever talk about because it's not cutesy Netflix. It's not cutesy queer. Eye. and I'm meant to be. The, I'm always positioned to be the classy one. It's not on brand. It's not on brand it's at not all. On brand
0: to hear about the bare knuckle years of town yeah. France.
1: The most feared man in Doncaster.
0: Yeah. Don't don't let him catch you in a blind alley.
1: See, here's the thing. I was never, ever a violent person. And I never wanted to be. But circumstances forced me to just learn to protect myself. And so I think when you go through all those years of just being ready to fight back, at this age now, it doesn't really scare me walking down the street. I think if somebody hits me, I'll hit them back.
0: Wow, I love that. You need like a spin-off show where you're like teaching people to fight. I, yeah. <laughs> Louis Theroux, and you're listening to the Louis Theroux podcast. And now back to my conversation with Tan France. You have how many followers on Instagram?
1: I'm. This is so lame to say, but I'm 2,000 of four million.
0: 2,000 of four million. Come on, people. Let's get ten. We just need two. It's like a telethon. We just need 2,000 more people. And when you started, I was reading this just today. When you started, you know, when you went for the audition to be in Queer Eye, you had how many? About (laughs) (laughs) 200-ish.
1: Amazing. And it was actually the first week that I got my first million. Really? The first week that it went out on air? Yeah. I got 900 and something thousand followers. Amazing. That first week. It was insane. Life changed so much within a day.
0: I've been in TV for, what, coming up on 25 years. I've got to think about 700, 800,000.
1: That's actually, I'm not just saying this. to be patronise actually No, Please it's great. Please don't patronise Because, me. L- let me say this.
0: Tan France, <laughs> I don't need you patronising me. It's great me. because you're not I've got you're three not BAFTAs. On Netflix,
1: right? I was on
0: Bravo, man. I built that. I, I nearly swore. I built that. Network Bravo. I paid swear, for the way. It's a safe space. You can I, swear. I built that fucking network. They were nothing.
1: <laughs> no, here's the thing. It's, they
0: dragged me down. The millions
1: of followers is a Netflix effect, and it's yeah. very well known here in LA in particular. I'm not just saying this because I drank the Kool Aid. I <laughs> I love them. They're so good to me. And I will say, look, there are many shows that launch that aren't very successful, and maybe they're not as supportive. Maybe they don't champion yeah. their success. But when you work really hard, they give me so many opportunities. I can't. I can't
0: believe how good they are with Because you're bringing home the bacon. Well, not bacon. Choose a different meat.
1: I, the turkey bacon. I'm bringing home the turkey bacon. <laughs> the
0: turkey bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the facon, if you're a vegetarian. <laughs> but I think people will be curious to know just how you came to be on Queer Eye, having had no background in show business, <laughs> right? How, sure. how do you suddenly become a presenter host on one of the biggest shows on TV? Um, With no experience.
1: <laughs> With zero relevant thanks, experience. That's that wonderful <laughs> setup. Um, I, uh, so here's the thing. A lot of people think I just came out of the blue and it was handed to me on the plate. And it really was. That is exactly, <laughs> what, exactly happened. what happened. I'm very lucky. So just to backtrack a little, I had businesses. I was a designer. I had four businesses, three of them were my main businesses that one of them I purchased within the last few months of my company and my businesses did exceptionally well and so I sold them all to retire. And so business had done well and we wanted to retire and have children and just travel the world with the kids. My goal was to always retire by 40. My dad wanted to retire by 50. He passed away when he was in his 40s and so when oh, I was a kid when you were I 13. thought Yeah. And so very young, I thought, I want to do all I can to try and retire by 40 so that, God forbid, if I suffer the same destiny as my father, hopefully I'll have a few years where I can actually enjoy my life and not work for somebody else. And somehow, miraculously, we got to a point where we could retire and a friend of my friend is a manager in Hollywood. And one of my businesses that I had was with a blogger, an influencer. And he had said, Is there any chance we could do a show about your business partner? She's got three sisters, they're all influencers. It could be like a Utah Kardashians. Right. But what we was the family
0: really- called? The family's called the The Scholars. The scholars, and they're famous in within Utah, is that right?
1: Actually, they're famous in the US in the fashion scene. Okay. So you'll see them at front row fashion shows. So these girls were doing well. They had million-dollar businesses also. They lived a life that could seemed very sexy to the audience. And they were all in their 20s. They all had kids. They're a very interesting family. But they're all white. And a white show in 2017 was not going to sell. They needed somebody of colour. And so he said, look, can you help me reach these girls? And would you be willing to just be in the background, be an extra? We just can't have a full white show. And you represent so many marginalised groups. We can have a one and done. I was like, sure, let me arrange a meeting with them. Um, We can have a one and done. What is a one and done? So instead of having to find a gay person to be on the show, a, a person of color, a this or that. Oh, you ticked I all the boxes. Yeah. And I'm not deluded. I know that that's possibly one of the reasons why I got the job. We can get back into it in a moment. But that's one of the reasons I got the job. I ticked so many boxes. Mm. So I, I arranged to go to these network meetings with these girls and this manager. And one of those meetings was your old nemesis, Bravo. And whilst I was at Bravo, we were all sat around this table with a bunch of their executives. They'd seen a little sizzle reel that was created and they said look girls you're all lovely but a show like this will destroy your family you're already close maybe this isn't a thing you should be doing and quite honestly you're too vanilla for tv and then she turned to me this executive and said you on the other hand i could put on tv tomorrow and i was like oh i had barely said a word i was i thought i was really quiet but apparently i wasn't i don't know how to be i said oh that's very nice but i have no interest in being On television, and so she said, "Can we not convince you to stay any longer to talk more?" I was like, "Absolutely not. I'm not interested. Thank you." Anyway, so a few weeks later, I retired fully. Got a call from this guy saying, after your meeting at Bravo, they put a word in at Netflix and suggested that they cast you on Queer Eye as the fashion guide. They've been looking for this person for six months. They've auditioned two and a half thousand people. They've all been no's. You might actually be it. I had a call with Netflix a couple of weeks later, even though I told this manager guy, no, thank you. I'm not interested. He kept calling and said, just take a call with them. Just take a call. So I did. It went really well. They invited me to a chemistry test in LA. It went very well because I didn't care. and I didn't want the job. I just thought I'm going to go. I'm going to make some gay friends and that's it. So there was no pressure for me. So I was saying everything I would say to anyone. And I was so myself that I did something really strange during, if you don't mind I'm going to really give you the full story about, about what happened. So the chemistry says the first night is a cocktail party, they see how you interact with everybody and then there was this section that lasted half a day where you all are all called up in turn and you go from station to station as if it were speed dating and you spend seven minutes at each table and each table, there were four tables, had a Netflix executive, a production company executive and some other random person, whoever they might be. And there's a fishbowl on each table and you pull out a question. I was watching other people do it and I thought, that's so not me. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't answer those questions. And so when it was my turn, they said, okay, will you take a question from the fishbowl? And I said, no, thank you. And they said, what do you mean no, thank you? I said, if you want to talk, talk. You want to get to know me, get to know me. And I said, I'm an open book. I'll discuss whatever you want. I said, but I've heard some of the questions. You don't need to know when I last flew a kite. I have no interest in telling you about my kite experience. Mm -hmm. I said, I heard you got a divorce recently. Do you want to tell me about that? Was it you who asked for the divorce or your partner and how are you feeling about it? And this was the creator of the show. and And he said, wait, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I'm deadly serious. Are you the reason you're getting a divorce or was it your partner? And he was like, I can't believe that you're not willing to take a question, but I'll answer your question. And then by the time I got to the fourth one, they had heard that I was the guy who refused to take questions from the bowl because I wanted to talk about whatever I wanted to talk about. That was clearly the right move because by the end of that, they said, let's put you in a room and start rotating other dudes and see who you get along with.
0: That's amazing. So you were the right person in the right place at the right time, but it's easy to imagine a world where maybe none of this would have happened and you would oh be gosh, what, yeah. sort of re- just retired living in Salt Lake?
1: Yeah, I would be a stay-at-home parent. It was my dream. It's still potentially my dream. In the next few years, I would love to cut back a heck of a lot and just do off-camera work and produce so I can be at home and help raise my children.
0: So let's talk about Doncaster, and in passing I'd like to reflect on, for those who don't know, the fact of you living in Salt Lake City, it's thousands of miles from Doncaster. It's a city in Utah in the yeah. west of the states. It's known as the sort of headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ and the Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. Mormonism. Yeah. I think it's sort of 90% white, very much kind of corn-fed, beautiful in the, in, in the Rockies in the distance. Gorgeous. But quite conservative, I think, right? Very, yeah, very conservative. Um, both senators are republicans are they they are nevertheless i'm told that salt lake is quite gay friendly
1: it is it's the most liberal part of utah and you really can't swing a cat without hitting 10 gays the gays are everywhere we have the largest gay community per capita in america how do you explain that i have no idea other than the mormons they separate the sexes a lot and so i think that they spend a lot of time with other managers, realize that they've developed an appetite for the same sex. Right. Are there,
0: this is going to, I'm going to ask a question from a place of ignorance. In terms of the LDS, do they tend to be gay friendly? Like, is it a, is it a kind Actually, of, yes. like the teachings in the Book of Mormon and, and whatnot, it's not terribly sort of bigoted and retrograde?
1: No, I mean, it depends on what part of Utah you're living in. There's a place called Utah County where I know that people are not as welcoming with the queer community. However, here in Salt Lake, it is really quite liberal. Actually, the best way I can articulate this is by saying all of my friends in Utah are LDS. They're all active Mormons. Yeah, They go to church, they go to temple, they believe in the covenants of the church, but there are certain aspects that they believe just aren't right and that those decisions were made by men but the church has come out multiple times and i'm not trying to defend the church but they've come out multiple times saying we understand that queer is a thing that there are gay people we just can't have gay marriage in the church but we should treat them kindly we should not be disrespectful and don't get wrong that flip-flops every now and then but on the whole my experience with the mormon church has been nothing but pleasant
0: And Rob, your husband, whose parents were ranchers in Wyoming, and I think he was Uh, raised LDS, Mormon, does he still consider himself Mormon?
1: No. He believes in God, but he doesn't... No, he's not an atheist. He definitely believes in God, but I don't think he believes in that way of going about it. Meanwhile,
0: over in Doncaster, which is a world away in various senses, where you grew up, I mean, what's striking, having seen your work and read your book and read up on your story, is... How dreadful a lot of your experiences were growing up, that you were exposed to some of the worst kinds of racism. Mm-hmm. I was really struck watching a program you made called "Beauty in the Bleach," which was about colorism, and there's a sequence in which you were about to go home, go back to Doncaster to explore some of your childhood experiences, and mm-hmm. as it plays out on screen, you just have a strong urge not to go back, like you, you basically yeah, but- don't you don't go back.
1: That caused some issues with the BBC, but yes, um, the plan was as part of the documentary, I would go back and revisit my experiences in Doncaster. However, and this is an arrogant comment, but it is who I am at this point. I don't get told what to do. I'll do what I want to do. And even if I get fired from Netflix, I've got my money. I can make my own choices. I'm not beholden to anyone. I thought I could do it. I couldn't. I wasn't ready and I didn't want to feel like shit. And so I'd rather piss off a lot of people and say no. Yeah. It made me very sad. And
0: and I had to explore my own sort of preconceptions a bit when watching it because a part of me wanted to feel okay about Doncaster, right? And, and, you know, England, you know, I I, I hated to reflect on how awful it must have been for you, right? You know, I
1: will say that's the hard part of talking about life in the UK. The Brits don't want to hear it. Mm. They're not ready to hear it. It makes them really, really angry. And I think that speaks volumes, Louis. I think that it is a real issue we have back home, and it's the reason why I'm I'm so much happier here. And that comment also gets a lot of negative react, a huge negative reaction, saying we've seen the racism on the news in America. You're telling us that it's worse than the UK. For me personally, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. For the black community here in America, racism is disgusting. And it has affected Mm -hmm. their lives so greatly. And in England, that might be the case also. But I don't know the black experience in the UK. Mm -hmm. I know the Asian experience. And I've got a lot of family and we all experienced the same thing. My family continues to experience the same thing. I left the UK 15 years ago. And I'm not saying that I hate the UK. I love the UK. And I love the majority of the people in the UK are amazing and have been so good and compassionate and aren't racist at all. But as we know, it's not those lovely people that... Are speaking up. It's the people who hate you who are going to tell you they hate you on the street. And so incredibly frustrated a lot of the time with, especially the press, not willing to believe or just believing that me and any other entertainer who speaks out about it in the US, who's come from the UK, is an arrogant douche who's left the UK and now thinks we're better than them. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that we've now left the UK, so we feel galvanized and powerful enough to be able to say, we don't expect anything from you, so we can now speak about how bad the damage was that was done to us. Mm. I hear all of that, and I
0: think it's it, it may be confusing to some people because in the U.S., you know, we have a former president Trump who basically spoke in nakedly, brazenly Islamophobic terms. Whereas here yeah. in the UK, we clearly have people of colour, prime minister, ministers on the front bench, people in positions of influence and power who come from South Asian and Muslim backgrounds. Nevertheless. There's no denying that racism is routine. And Um, I'm curious to explore with you aspects of that. I mean, you talk about aged, I think, six, that you were mm -hmm. actually physically beaten up by men on the way to school. And that that was, I mean... The first occasion. And you were talking earlier about basically physically needing to defend yourself on other occasions. Yeah.
1: Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. So my dad, and I won't speak ill of my dad, I love my dad, But my dad was really angry, obviously at what had happened, but angry that I didn't fight back. And Which I just, I, I
0: find that it's just very odd. Like you, when you were so young, I mean, how would you fight back? I mean, I've got an eight-year-old. The way you walk him to school, anyway. Your your dad had his reasons, I guess.
1: I think he was angry at himself. Actually, I yeah. know he was angry at himself because he believed that he could have put us in a better position for us to be able to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And he did do that with my older brothers. They were able to protect themselves. My eldest brother was incredibly strong and always won the fight. And so my dad possibly was right to expect that of me also. I just wasn't prepared. You were six
0: though. You just said you were six, right?
1: Yeah. However, my other siblings could take care of themselves at a young age, really young age. Even against older kids, they would find a weapon and make it home. Mm. And I didn't. And so it fucked me up for a really long time. There were so many weird feelings. But over the years, I learned my dad is going to continue to be really angry at me if I don't figure this shit out. And so I better start hitting back. Even if I'm in pain, I hit back. Eventually, you just learn to win the fight. By the time I got to like 15, 16, I learned this isn't stopping it. It's not helping the situation. I still get hurt. And so I started to use Humor and my personality to try and get out mm. of the situation, to try and make them like me within those 10 seconds to avoid a beating. But yeah, These there from were,
0: strangers, like randoms on the complete streets strangers. or people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, complete strangers. Racist white people. Yeah, racist white people. Teenagers. Yeah, kids would say shit, but that didn't bother me. It was when it came from the older people, mm-hmm. it was usually grown ups. It was almost oh, yeah, always yeah. grown ups especially when I hit Manchester and I moved to Manchester when I was 17. They were in their 20s and 30s.
0: And you were saying that from speaking to your family, your strong impression is that things haven't got much better.
1: Is that right? I know this to be the case. I was in England two years ago. And I was on the bus from my mum's house into town because I thought it would be a cute cultural experience because I hadn't been on the bus since I was like 17. <laughs> and somebody called me a Paki on the bus. I stupidly thought that my success would negate mm-hmm. all of that shit for me. But if somebody doesn't know who I am, I'm still just a random Paki on the street. Describe
0: if you can the feeling of um, that inability or that unwillingness to go back because it's obviously visceral and strong. And um,
1: can you describe it? It it It's just yeah. No, it's uh, the best way to describe it is that you start to feel really nauseated. Have you ever been kicked in the balls?
0: Yes, of course. Yeah, you know that feeling where it's a strange feeling because it's not not a normal pain. It's like it's it's a very weird, different kind of a pain. Yeah, like you say, it's so vaguely nauseous. Yeah,
1: that's the feeling I feel. And I started in the car to feel lightheaded. My body had never responded this way to anything. It feels like almost an emotional shutdown. Maybe you
0: could have forced yourself to go back, but some part of you felt like it wasn't worth it.
1: I absolutely could have gone. Like I could have forced myself. I could have just said, look, you drive. I'm just going to get rid of my dizziness. I'm going to sit in the passenger seat and you take me during that drive, I just thought, what am I doing this for? Who am I doing this for? Who is it going to benefit? It's not benefiting me. Who am I really doing this for? A TV network? Fuck off. And that's not to denigrate the BBC. Fuck off, BBC. <laughs> Fucking BBC. Can we, say, can we also say fuck you to ITV? Because they drive me insane. Um, <laughs> where are all the brown people on ITV, ITV? Oh, really? You think ITV's bad with representation? Fucking hell, Yeah. Sorry, I I don't know if somebody warned you about my terrible language beforehand. But I started
0: um, it. I I said fuck
1: bravo. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I get pissed off that they just won't put any Asians on primetime. Are we really not entertaining in any way enough to have a primetime show? I don't think any British network has an Asian on primetime TV, and I don't know what the fuck is wrong. That can't be true, can it? Oh, can you think of one? Well,
0: look, I was thinking about this on the way here because I know one of your things was... I saw no one like me on TV growing up. And by the way, just to get this out there, South Asians are the largest... uh, Minority group in the UK. Minority group in the UK, about 9%. Also, we are 81.7% white, 4% black. And South Asians are the most underrepresented on UK TV, according to a report. And Um, according to Tan France also, yes. And according to Tan France, leading expert... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and also, Islamophobia is the most common form of religious hate crime in the UK. 42% of all religious hate attacks were against Muslims.
1: Does not surprise me at all. Okay, so let's get that out there. So, yes. So now, wait, that no, being really, the case, that, though. No, no, wait, Louis, let me ask you. Why was I talking too much? Can you think, of, no, can, but I really want to throw this back to you. Yeah. Can you think of a South Asian on primetime TV right now?
0: I'm just thinking about Sanjeev Bhaskar no. and Mira Sayal. I mean, Meet the Kumars was obviously a big show. I mean, it I'm was. not saying like, oh, now I mean, we've done this. It. Like, yeah. And then people are like, we've done it. Now we don't need to do that again. Yes. But right now, we have uh, Asian newsreaders, don't we?
1: Naga I'm, Munchetti. And- I'm just going to say this, and uh, please know on. that I say this with all respect. Oh, fuck off. Okay. Thank you. That felt very respectful. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Oh, fuck off. You can't give me weather girls and newsreaders. No, I'm okay, talking fine. about entertainers.
0: <laughs> oh, there's too much reality flying around.
1: Um, <laughs> I there know that was there's some... one, I think he's Sri Lankan. He's a comedian. Oh, there uh, we go. He wears glasses. Romesh Ranganathan. Oh, thank you. Ramesh Ranganathan. Um, so I haven't lived in the UK for a very long time and somebody did tell me that he's, he's, huge. he's on... He's network. on half the shows on television. Which is, a, I'm so happy. But one does not represent the amount of people we have. No, you're right. But again, all of this within the last four or five years. When I was in the UK, there really wasn't. Yes, there was Meet the Kumars. Yes, there was Goodness Gracious Me. But other than that, like you guys get 99.9%. We can't say that our point something percent every five years is representation. We can't, Louis. No, no, I agree. I'm
0: agree I'm, I'm totally down with that. It's striking reading up on you that it seems as though you didn't feel any dissonance to do with knowing that you were gay and being in a relatively conservative Muslim family. There was no sense of, I need to stifle this, what's
1: wrong with me? You you were just confident no. and happy in who you were. I really wish I had a better memory. The weed is Friday, I guess. But there were so many fun memories I have thinking about my siblings planning to get married and me always thinking well, when I get married, I'm going to marry a man. I was just so matter-of-fact about it. I don't remember a time when I really struggled with it. And even if my family didn't accept it, I thought, well, then I'll run away. All I can put it down to is being incredibly selfish. I just thought, I will make myself happy.
0: Did you formulate that as a thought? Like, if my family can't handle it, then I'll just go somewhere else
1: where they can handle it. Yeah, I mean, I planned on running away to America since I was probably 12, 13 um and then i first always had a love affair with america i just saw it as a place where i could be myself because i'd seen gays on tv in america and i thought okay well they let them in maybe i can live a happier life there and then when i first came to america at the age of 17 sorry that's a lie i was 16 when i arrived but i turned 17 on that trip it was before my 17th birthday was this your Um, weekend in new york Four days, that's right. Where um, you lied to your... Basically, you didn't even tell anyone. They thought you were like staying at a friend across town. They thought I was like 20 minutes away from my family home. And instead, I was like the ringleader of our little pack of three. And I convinced my two friends to come to New York with me. They were also 16. So stupid. Oh, gosh, my kid did that. Now I'd slap the shit out of him. You should not hit your kids, Don't hit everyone. your kids. Don't hit your kids. <laughs> I wanted to go to America. And so I, when I came... I realized that no one could tell where we were from. So there was no racism. So I thought, okay, I get to be gay and there's no racism for me. This definitely will be my home. And a couple of my family members didn't know I was gay before I moved to America. And so I really was running away. I'd like to talk for just for a
0: second about family. I think maybe you won't want to. Only Go. I'm basing that because you've said there are certain things that are very private to me and family is one of them. Go. My sense is that growing up it was quite a big thing for your family to deal with, you coming out and yeah. and then marrying your husband, Rob. Yeah. How long ago was that? I married him thirteen and a half years ago. That was in London. You married again in, in America. Your family didn't come to the wedding and they didn't. They didn't you, know to be fair, they didn't know I was getting married at that time. They didn't know you were well, that would be perhaps because you didn't invite them.
1: Yeah. Well <laughs> I didn't invite them and I didn't tell them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fair (laughs) right (laughs) so you said for 10
0: years they've never used his name or they had never used his name so now it's a very strange feeling with them over skype because now i guess there's a relationship there they've actually seen him on facetime and that's a very strange process originally they said you can live the life you want but never ever bring it home you can never talk about it
1: yeah that was the case from 17 until 35 ish and I accepted that. I made my peace with it. I always knew they would come around. And maybe that's silly to assume, but I, I know them. And we've always been really close. Even though there was this one massive element of my life I wasn't allowed to talk about, I love them. I'm really close with them. And so when I told the majority of them at 17, they were also confused. This is your mum, your two brothers, and your sister? Yeah. So I told You're my sister, the youngest, and my brother. I should say that. You're the youngest of I am. four children. I am. So I told my sister and my brother, and then I told my mom a year later. So I told my sister and my brother, and they were panicked. And they said, okay, look, you know what the religion is. We understand that there is such a thing as gay, but just don't act on it. Okay, that's not going to happen, unfortunately. I already have. Um, <laughs> too late. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I said, look, I understand that this is going to cause a lot of issues for our community. I'm moving to Manchester anyway. Nobody ever needs to know. And that was what they were really happy with. No one ever needs to know because you're moving away. And so it was just our secret, our family secret for a few years. I called my mom a year later when I was in Manchester and said, hey, this is what's happening. I want you to know that I'm gay and that I can't ever marry a woman. She struggled, but did better than any of them. She cried and then said, okay, let's talk about it when you get home. I went home, we talked about it. And she said, I always knew you were different. I knew you weren't like your brothers at all. So she said, I don't think I understood what it was, and I still don't understand what it is. I've never heard of two men being together, but I just knew you were very different from your brothers. And so I think she was just more confused. She wasn't angry. She wasn't angry at all. She didn't make me feel bad. No she...
0: tears? It wasn't like Oh tears. yeah, of course.
1: You're... From every one of them. Every time I came out to any one of them, there were tears as if somebody had just passed away. Really? Um, but... tears from you as well? What were you yeah, experiencing? Yeah, of course. I was so upset. Partly the relief of being able to just get it out, but also the tears were... And recently I told some extended family members, and I cried again. And this was shortly before Queer I was coming out. I cried again. Even though I feel no shame or upset in my life, I'm very comfortable and happy with my life. I think it's the expectation that everyone has or the worry that you're going to disappoint them or maybe even that they may have an adverse reaction. Uh, Who knows? Mm -hmm. There's so much emotion involved with coming out, even if you feel perfectly secure in yourself. And so that was the case with my mom. I knew that the life that she had planned for me wasn't going to happen and that upset me for her. Every one of them, I think, felt comfort in the fact that I wasn't in England. And so there wasn't going to be a dramatic moment within the community where they all find out, they all realize until Queer Eye. Queer Eye changed the game completely because then everyone knew there was no hiding from it. Mm. And so that's why I've always said I don't talk about my family. I don't want the small community in my hometown to think that they have a right to know how my family feel about it. That's why I've always been quite cagey about it. Mm. I feel such pressure. It's not just about me. I'm so jealous of my castmates. We've talked about this a lot and they know how I feel. So jealous that they are all from families and communities where their fame and success and wealth and all this that they've achieved is a positive. Mm. But for me, it's something that I still have to kind of hide like my dirty little secret.
0: Because your family might still experience judgment from what? From the British-Pakistani community? Uh, the, yeah, the,
1: from the Asian community within their community.
0: In what form do they experience that?
1: The whispers, the gossip, the really? stories that the kids will come home and tell them from school. This person's mum said this about Uncle Tan. This person's dad said this about Uncle Tan. They don't think we should go to the same mosque anymore. Those kind of things. Like That is horrible for them. And so I understand... That my coming out and my freedom isn't as blissful for them as it is for me. I could imagine
0: some people might, in your shoes, might say, um, "Well, you've obviously got a strong connection with your family, right?" Some might really say, "Like, strong. well, if you don't accept, you know, Rob in my life, and you know, it's me and him, or mm-hmm. you don't get me without him, kind of thing, right?" There's a world in which you would have cut ties.
1: No. No, not at that point. Mm. There was a time when I was willing to cut ties and that's when we had implanted and we were then pregnant. Mm. At that point, I'd said, look, I've been married to my husband for a long time and I can't remember how long it was at that time. You've never met him. We don't talk about him. And if you want me to remain in your life, you will have to meet my son's father and you will have to get to know him. I'm never going to bring my son to England and pretend he doesn't have another parent or for you guys mm-hmm. to not acknowledge his other parent. And so they were great about it. They're like, okay, let's meet him. We're not willing to not have you in our lives. We're not willing to not have our grandson or nephew in our lives. Of course, we'll meet him. Have you hosted your family in Salt Lake? At my LA home, I brought them all out, not last Christmas, the Christmas before, all 19 of them. Came to stay. That must have been quite special. It was amazing. They were amazing with him. They were amazing with my son. It was the first time they were meeting my son. He was only five months old. And so, yeah, they all got to come out and experience America for the first time. There was so much confusion when I moved to America from my whole family thinking, how could you leave your family? It's so unheard of for a Pakistani boy to leave his community. We come from such a traditional, tight knit community. You kind of stay close by until you get married. And even after that, you stay close to your family. So for me to leave all alone was quite jarring for everybody. But I kept telling them how much I love this country and the reason why I love this country. And then they came out here. And now they absolutely understand why I love living in America. Like, what is it, do you think, what
0: can be improved? What is the... Can you put any kind of a... Can you help me understand...
1: What, what that's about. What makes it better?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I really can. I, I've managed to pinpoint it, and this is going to sound ridiculous to you, but you are a very smart man. So I'm hoping you can put yourself in my shoes or any Asian shoes for just a second. Okay. The joy one feels when you walk down the street and don't think, even for a second, somebody's going to call me a Packy. Right. I'm going to have to defend myself at some point from my home to my work, from my work to hanging out with friends, from hanging out to home, somebody might physically or verbally assault me. I can't remember if it was the Daily Mail or some other fuckwits who once said, oh, he's basically trying to suggest that they get this every day. No, I've never said we get this every day. But if you get it often enough, you will be aware of it every day. You will be on high alert every day. I've never once thought that in America And every time I go back to England outside of London, I'm hyper aware. And so that's why I I can pinpoint it exactly for you. That freedom, you can't put a price on.
0: me again louis theroux just to remind you you're listening to the louis theroux podcast and now back to my conversation with tan france so you've got season seven of queer eyes is coming out so that's exciting
1: it's crazy that we have seven seasons of a show that's actually quite uncommon these days especially for a streamer so yeah i couldn't be more grateful
0: I mean, what's going to happen when you've fixed everyone, when everyone's been <laughs>
1: queer-eyed? I honestly can't imagine it's going to go longer than maybe one more season. I just can't. I mean, I, I love the the fact that people keep watching and our Last season was weirdly our most successful yet. But even after filming that season, I just thought, they've seen it. It's a format show that we do the same thing every episode. But yeah, I'm shocked that people are still so into it.
0: Well, it's an utterly uncynical show, which I think is perhaps a, a positive note to end on. Like, It speaks to the urge people have to see something that's celebratory and kind, right? Yeah.
1: Isn't that nice that a show that is purely positive can be so successful? I'm the cynic, I guess. When I got the show, I thought, this is never going to work. We're just a bunch of people trying to spread positivity. That's Joy, never going to yeah. work. Yeah. So to know that that was possible really does give me hope.
0: Well, congratulations on its continuing success. We didn't even let, get... Let, to- let me say
1: this. Can I speak really frankly and say this? Oh, what? Uh, now? You're, that like you haven't been no frank? I mean, I'm just well, dealing... The, I'm dealing with this the this fact the that most
0: frank. I'm now like, I'm kind of an icon of gammon. Like what I heard from you is like, you're the kind <laughs> of person who is like nice to gay people... To their face, and then goes off and says something horrible. <laughs> That's gonna
1: actually, stay with no, me. No, I was you actually went a step further. I wasn't saying you were nice to gay people. I said you would talk to gay people, and then later on. <laughs> but what the fuck oh, was that fairy no. saying? I oh, I legitimately say no to almost every podcast that comes in. Now. I fucking hate a podcast. But yeah, it's different with you. I really wanted to do it. So thanks, thank for you. Me, oh, I appreciate honor.
0: that, Tan. Thank you so much. So here I am again. I hope you enjoyed that. An extremely enjoyable chat for me, anyway. And challenging in parts. I think a lot to think about, especially the part about me being a kind of gammon incarnate, a gammon flesh puppet. It was a shock to think that someone might imagine I'd be in any way homophobic. I like to think I telegraph a beneficent sort of 360 tolerance towards everyone. Evidently, that's not always coming across. Something to work on. He said he thought that I might be sort of tolerably nice in person and then talk smack behind the person's back. Well, he's gone now. So here's what I really think. That's a joke. It is striking that Tan's experience of American culture seems to be that it is less ambiently racist than British culture, especially in the post-Trump era where Islamophobia is clearly rampant in the US and was being promoted from the highest offices of state. I do think that from living in America, it's striking how the nation's relationship with South Asian culture and the South Asian community is quite different to the UK. And there's an almost sort of innocent naivete in their relationship with the South Asian community, which is sometimes just out and out, I guess, racist, you know, in a kind of bumbling way. You think of the Simpsons, which for 20 years had a white actor, Hank Azaria, playing the role of Apu, the Asian storekeeper. And in fact, the whole nature of that character on The Simpsons, which was so stereotypical that even in the 90s, I remember thinking, wow, it does seem rather one-dimensional and, well, I guess, offensive. And then even as, you know, in the 80s, I remember seeing Fisher Stevens, a white actor, browning up to play an Asian character, On Short Circuit, the movie franchise. So what do you make of that? I don't know. What am I trying to say? No one actually knows. Whether Salt Lake City genuinely is the gayest city in America, however you define that, is subject to dispute, according to some Gallup data from 2017. Salt Lake City is the seventh gayest. I think we're basing that on the number of gay people per capita. Boston is 4.8% gay. Los Angeles 4.6%. Salt Lake City is 4.7%. I am 5.3% gay, in case you were wondering. Intriguing to note his interest in boxing as well. I'm a fan of boxing. I'm not a fan of actually boxing someone. I mean, I watch it. I don't do it, unlike Tan. He's quite fit. Not overly tall, but he is tight and lithe. He's wiry. Would he be a bantamweight, flyweight, featherweight, strawweight? Anyway, I don't fancy facing him in the ring or in an alley after dark. Not that I imagine it would happen. Anything, I mean, I know I've wanged on a bit. Is it enough? It? Oh, I'll try and link to some relevant material in the show notes. Maybe a couple of bits of Tan's other output that I've enjoyed. He did an interview with Pete Davidson that I found funny. And maybe some relevant links Just on the off chance there's anything to do with Take a Peek, you'll remember that's the gay porn film that I was in. I've been dining out on that for nigh on 30 years now. It was very hot. When the park ranger came in in his little park ranger's outfit. Well, it's not for me to say. We filmed it under the title Snowbound. It got three and a half out of five on the Peter meter. That's an industry term. Apparently it's on YouTube. Maybe we can link to that. We'll try not to break the internet. OK, moving on. Right, time for credits. This episode was produced by Millie Chu, Paul Kobrak and Marn al The production manager was Francesca Bassett and the executive producer was Aaron Fellows. The music in this series is by Miguel de Oliveira. This is a Mindhouse production... Exclusively for Spotify.